Welcome to Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson. Here we explore subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. And as always, with questions or comments about our show, you can reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. Just to make sure that you're aware, following the conversation, we do a segment with my dear friend, my childhood pal, buddy and sister, Ambassador Shabazz, titled How We Move, so stick around for that. The meaning of icon is an icon is much more known than a celebrity. They are someone who leaves a mark on media's history. They have a strong depth of significance. They are a person who is well-known and who people look up to. My guest today embodies that description. Jane Kennedy Overton broke barriers when she became the first woman of color to host the NFL on CBS, a national sports show when she replaced Phyllis George on what Bob Costas then credited with being, quote, the template for modern studio shows, end quote. When you look around the landscape of women in various broadcasting roles today, both inside and outside the world of sports, you must acknowledge the trail blazed by Jane Kennedy Overton. Her passion has continued in her post-media slash Hollywood life as an advocate and mentor of dozens of young girls in their pursuit of academia and sports, many of whom Jane personally facilitated scholarships to major universities. I watched some old footage of Jane as I was preparing for today, and I was struck by the ease of her manner as an interviewer, whether talking to a young Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Joe Namath, or Muhammad Ali, there was this sincere intimacy in her tone, body language, and steady eye contact that was completely disarming. Managing to demonstrate both knowledge of subject while projecting the ability to not take herself too seriously. She was quick to laugh. She's got a great laugh. And of course, Jane is undeniably charismatic. The Ohio-born and raised beauty queen's intellect had no trouble keeping up with her physical attributes. However, that said, Jane was, and still is, as we used to say around the way, fine as hell. And to borrow some lyrics taken from the Lakeside track, something about that woman from Jane's 1983 workout video, as the song goes, there she goes again, looking like she just stepped out of a magazine. Such a pretty thing. There she goes again, knowing there's a chance that she might create a scene. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and I know you do. I'm sure Jane has created a scene or two just by showing up. Recently, the Smithsonian National Museum of African-American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. inducted Jane Kennedy Overton into the annals of media pioneers, honoring her alongside luminaries Diane Carroll, Nat King Cole, Nichelle Nichols, the Supremes, and my man Don Cornelius. Next to the wall, honoring the above mentioned, is a quote from Oprah Winfrey, quote, we used to gather around the TV and jump up and down, colored people on TV, colored people on TV. I think we all remember Jet Magazine, their page that used to list when black folks would appear on various TV shows. It's fair to say we've come a long way from there, thanks in part to Jane. And on that note, I'm truly honored to welcome the icon herself. Jane Kennedy Overton, welcome to Corner Table Talk. Oh my God, Brad, you're going to have me with a head full of ego. <laughs> that was an amazing summary. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been a, an interesting career. It's been an interesting life. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. It's so nice to have you. My pleasure. Before, Jane, we get started, I have to give a shout out to my man, Gregory Amerson, for his help coordinating today. He also sends me articles all the time. He forwards me whatever he thinks I need to be reading. So, Greg, thank you for that, brother. You keep a brother on his game. Thank you. I was blessed to have met him five years ago, and he's been incredible. I, in the back of my mind, <laughs> somewhat in terms of getting me on board with this next step, what I call my Jane 2.0. Um, because I felt like my kids were all out of the house and grown. 
And I felt like I had not finished what I had originally set out to do. Jane 2.0 is on track. We are looking forward to Jane 2.0. So Jane, we kick things off here with what I call our short order questions. I'm going to pop a few of these off at you and get your response. So tell me, what music are you listening to these days? Oh my God. I don't listen to radio music. I don't listen to streaming music. I will go back to my oldies but goodies. <laughs> I will go back to Luther Vandross. I will go back to, actually, Adele is on my current list. But anything Motown, anything from back in the 60s, 70s, that's my soundtrack. Yeah, no, I feel you. How about your morning beverage? What's the first thing that you consume in the morning? Oh, gosh, should I tell the truth? <laughs> The truth is Diet Coke. <laughs> okay, Diet Coke. All right, how about diet-wise? Vegan, vegetarian, flexitarian, other? I'd have to say other because I'm not going to put a label on it. I actually try to stay away from red meat. I rarely eat pork. I eat a lot of vegetables, a lot of fruit. I do like starch, which I actually should not <laughs> I should probably stay away from a little bit more. I love potatoes. I love rice. I don't have much pasta, but I drink a lot of water. I'll go through a huge, not a gallon, but a huge container of water every day. So I try to eat stuff that's good for me. I'm not too good at that. I love chocolate. <laughs> I love, as a matter of fact, I love salty snacks more than I do sweet snacks. So that's strange, but that's me. Okay. And how about date night? Do you and Bill have a, a favorite restaurant that you like to go to? No, actually. Even when we dated, before we got married, we didn't really go to restaurants as much as we would grab something to eat when we go sit on the beach. That would be a big date for us, to just grab something and go sit on the beach. Date night nowadays probably would be go to a movie and, again, grab something from a soul food restaurant that probably would be our first choice cuban food i love jambalaya and i love spicy food so that would be probably as, as much as i would do on a date night okay all right and last one of these is there anywhere that you are looking forward to traveling to oh absolutely yes i love to travel i've been so many places i remember when i was pregnant with savannah my firstborn and I was maybe eight and a half months pregnant. I did a show in Mauritius off the coast of South Africa. I remember the entire flight. I was on my knees in front of the seat with my belly hanging down because it was so much more comfortable with my belly hanging down rather than sitting in the seat. That was like an eye opener for me. But I did travel with my kids a lot. I always said that when I started having a family, I would probably not work as much. But that was a lie because I continued to work. I did take Savannah with me a lot. And Cheyenne, my stepdaughter, she would often travel with us as well. Then when my second daughter, Copper, was born, and by the time she became three, I think, and Savannah was like heavily going into elementary school, I said, I can't continue doing this. So I decided that I was just going to limit my travel. And I wasn't going to be an away mom. The last year that I worked full time, I was only home 28 days out of the whole year. I did not want to raise a family that way. So when they started to get to the age where they had to be in school, I didn't want them traveling with a teacher or a nanny. I wanted them to be around friends. I wanted to be, have them in an environment where they could grow as individuals. So I decided that my travel was going to be extremely limited at that point. As a matter of fact, I don't even have a passport anymore. <laughs> I've got to go get one. But I love to travel. And I want to say probably my favorite place would have been Mauritius or Tobago. Yes. Off of the coast of Trinidad. Oh, yeah. Love that. All right. So let's jump in here, Jane. I recently read an article about tennis legend Althea Gibson who in 1957 became the first black tennis player to win at Wimbledon. As the story goes, when she came back to the States to play in her next tournament in Chicago, she was refused a room at all of the upscale hotels. One of them also rejected a request to book a luncheon meant to honor her. 
In the same paper was a piece about how Venus and Serena have changed tennis, their style of play, and given that they were both from Compton, what that's done as a confidence builder for women of color and just women in general. I couldn't help, Jane, but draw an analogy to your early career in the studio broadcast booth. And although the open discrimination Althea face was not as blatant when you emerged, we weren't yet either in the era that allowed the Williams sisters to rise to such prominence, not to mention the progression of earnings that they rightfully have enjoyed. I'm curious, Jane, when you think of your career in this context, how would you describe the times that you were breaking barriers in terms of the challenges? What was that atmosphere like? It was a very difficult atmosphere at that time. I'm a child of the 60s. I was raised, I graduated high school in 1970. So my teenage years, I spent during the civil rights movement, presidential assassinations, Dr. King's assassination, Bernie Draftard, the anti-Vietnam movement, the Black Panthers. It was a tumultuous decade. And that was where all my concepts of what life should be, what my purpose should be, were developed during those 10 years. And so it was something that my parents always taught me that you can do whatever you want to do. For me to watch television and see people actually saying, no, you can't. I don't know why I believe my parents more than I believe society and the things that I saw on TV. But I really did believe that if I set my mind to it, I could excel. When I decided in 1971 that I was going to make a home in California, I just actually believed that I could. I remember when I told my mom, I said, Liam and I had just gotten married and we decided that we were not going to settle in an apartment that we had already applied for and received the keys. We said, we're not going to settle in there because once we do that, there's no telling when it would be that we would actually pick up and make the move to Los Angeles. So we said, we've got to do it right now. And coming to Los Angeles in the 70s was a huge awakening. There was not a lot that was offered for Black talent. There was a small pool of Black Hollywood at that time. They pretty much knew everybody. You knew all of the people that were going to be up against you in roles that you might audition for. The support system was a very small system. And their friends were very good friends. It was an atmosphere, though, that was also tainted with there were only a few parts and only a few people could get these parts. So you were always running against the same people all the time in the audition. And you'd see somebody and you go, oh, my God, I'm up against her again. Is she going to get the part? Am I going to get the part? There were always so many no's as to why you wouldn't get the part. There were so limited parts for Blacks, period. When you look at the landscape of what it was like in the 70s for Black men in Hollywood, there were more parts available. But for a woman, you had Cleopatra Jones, you had Pam Greer, and Diana Ross. And you had Diane Carroll, of course, and Michelle Nichols, but they weren't actually competing for the same roles that I was competing for. They were beyond me. So it was very difficult. Like, I'd walk in and there was always Lynette McKee. There was always Vanetta McGee. There was always Tracy Reed. And these people that you were competing against, and then it was also not just my color, because you, it had to say black in the script. It was a time where you didn't have the opportunities that we have today. Even when you did get a part, there wasn't a PR system that could catapult you into success with that part. There wasn't the money that was available for any black actresses to get any parts whatsoever. If you got a movie, you didn't get more than $10,000. That was just a challenging time for blacks in the entertainment industry. I was always one of the people that said, I'm going to branch out and do more than just this. And people would tell me, no, if you're going to sing and dance, you won't be taken seriously as an actress. But I said, I could sit around waiting to be an actress on a lead part for five years. So it didn't make sense. I was going to do a little bit of everything. Whatever could come my way, then I was going to take that challenge. When the NFL Today came up, my agent told me they're not looking for anybody Black. And they had a huge audition pool. I asked three times for my agent to submit me. They were supposed to submit a list of 10. And all three times they refused to put my name on the list. So I just called Jim Brown. And Jim Brown called Bob Stenner, who was a film producer, a game producer. And Bob Stenner called George Wallach, who was the manager for Bruce Jenner at the time. And he said, the head of talent for CBS Sports is in town next week. I'd like you to meet her. And when I met her, she said, I want to bring you to New York, of course. I got to New York and there's 16 girls and all of them were blonde. So they were not looking for me. 
But even when I did get the part, they had a, a, a serious problem because they were afraid that the Southern affiliates would balk because then there would be two blacks on the show and one white. So with me, Irv Cross, and then Brett Musburger sitting in the middle, that was a tremendous problem. The fix was Jimmy the Greek, who was already on the show, they would bring him to sit on the desk, which would mean then one black, one white, one black, one white. And that's how I got hired. The challenges of being a black woman in Hollywood were huge. As you mentioned, Jane, the uh, competition for that role was fierce. And uh, I read a piece that after your audition, Brent Musburger called the brass at CBS and said to them, it's Jane Kennedy or nobody. I'm curious at that point, how confident were you that you had nailed the audition? Actually, I wasn't confident at all. Like I said, everybody else in the room was white and I felt good with the audition. We didn't have Google, so there wasn't any opportunity to do any research. We didn't get the name of the person we were interviewing until Saturday night and the, the audition was on Sunday. We had five minutes where you would read copy into a teleprompter, five minutes on set with, with Brent, and then five minutes of doing the interview with a yet-to-be-known sports figure, football figure. And uh, we didn't know that until the very last minute who we were going to be talking. I was not confident. I believed in myself, but I was not confident because I didn't feel that I had all the material that I needed going into the interview. I called a friend of mine and he said, Jane, you have to understand. He says that you're very easy to talk to. He said, but you've got to let people know that. He said, because you're intimidating when they first see you. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> He said, but he said, if you can just bring them in with your warmth and the fact that you're comfortable about being around athletes, he said, I think that, that would be a huge plus. And that's what I did. The next day when I was doing my interview, it was like we were old friends. We had a tremendous opportunity. We played a game of backgammon before the interview. So when we got to the set, it was just amazing. Then Brent actually, he didn't call the brass. He just actually stood up and walked off the set right there. It's Jane or nobody. Wow. And the producers, they all said it's Jane or nobody, president of CBS Sports. But then it was, like I said, they had to do the thing with the Southern affiliates. So it wasn't until a month later that I actually found out that I had the job. But that was amazing. When I got that phone call and it said that you have the job, I was just flabbergasted. Like I was jumping up and down and crying and screaming. It was a major coup for me because it was a long process. Sure. And... On that note, Jane, so much talk now looking back uh, at that moment was about you breaking barriers. I wonder for you, was that front of mind or was your sole focus on just preparing for the job and to do a good job? I never thought about myself in terms of breaking barriers. I was just trying to work. There wasn't the acknowledgement that you were financially set, so you didn't really know that you were a huge success. I was in a position where I was working so much. I was so blessed that I was going from job to job. I was working so much that I was either in a hotel room or on a set or flying back and forth on some airplane. And I didn't have the opportunity to be out in public. And you didn't have the PR machine. You didn't have, you know, social media. So you didn't really know the impact that you were having. Or at least I didn't. I would talk to young women either in a hotel lobby somewhere or at some event that I went to. And they would say things like, oh, my God, you make me believe that it's possible. You make me believe that I can drink, that I can do this. Or like moms and dads would say, we make sure that our daughters watch you because we want them to know that things are possible for them. But it wasn't until later that I really understood when I look back and when I'm with my children or when I'm just out and I'm not working, when I'm settled and I'm in with America and what that entails. I got a phone call from a woman who I met when my youngest girl, Zaire, was in college at USC. I met her there. She was one of her advisors. But then five years later, I got a call from her and she said, this is going to be really strange. She said, but my father just passed away we would like for you to come to his funeral. The family would like for me to come to the funeral. And I didn't know that. So when she told me the story, then I had to go. She said, wow, okay. She said she and her two sisters, her father made them sit in front of the TV set on the NFL Today when I was on the NFL Today. 
and he would make them watch. He would say, this woman is doing this in a job where not only is she the only woman doing that, she's the only black woman doing that. So you need to know that you can do this too. She said that all three of them excelled in their career choices because of those Sundays in front of the TV set watching me do the unthinkable, the unbelievable. And I had to go. I had to go to her dad's funeral. Jane, I can hear you and see you get emotional, but I mean, those of us from that generation, we can completely relate to the impact that you had on all of us. Men too, it was just your presence and the warmth that you projected on screen and that you were there, you were doing it was so significant. And again, that's why I'm so happy that it's Jane 2.0 now time, because we're so ready to hear more from you and see more of you. And on that note, obviously I know that work got busy, life got busy, you're flying back and forth, but can you just reflect a little bit for me on how life changed for you at that point? Because that was a big get, that CBS show, that was a big get and no one else had done it. How what happened in your life for you that you really remember from that period that signified that this is a different part of my life now? Okay, I was still living in Los Angeles, but I was working in New York. So every Friday night, I would have to fly to New York, do my research on Saturday or go to the studio or to the production office or whatever I needed to try to get more information. And then Sundays we shot all day. You don't really understand the dynamics of doing a studio show until you're actually in it. I had done television for years. It wasn't like I was brand new to the industry. I had done live television for years, but I had never done anything about sitting on the desk <laughs> of a live sports broadcast because you're covering all of the games. You've got monitors and that was way before technology and it's peak. So you've got monitors, you've got people handing you notes under the desk, you've got chairs in your ear, you've got producers in your ear on the files, and then you've got, you're also in a scripted but unscripted environment where you're sitting on a desk trying not to overstep three other people and looking at clips and then looking at the games that were, and you're calling what's going to happen in this game. Maybe that broadcast is going out to five different cities. But then when you get to halftime of that game, you're also opening up for another three games that are opening up in the central time zone. Then by the time you get to the post-game shows, you're in halftime of those central time. And you have to remember what you said to which different audience. And then there's also the Pacific Coast time games. So it's really a mind-whirling <laughs> experience on a Sunday. And at the end of the day, you're exhausted. Then you got to get on a plane and fly back to Los Angeles. Since I was doing the interviews with the athletes, I would have Monday to catch up on my other endeavors. And then on Tuesday, I would fly out to do my interview because most of them were east of the Mississippi. Then I would do my interview Wednesday and back to Los Angeles Wednesday night. Thursday, I'm working. And then Friday, going back to, to New York. I really didn't have a personal life. I really didn't have an opportunity to figure out what else was I doing in, <laughs> in this world because it was extremely exhausting, exhilarating. I love the idea that I was able to sit down and chat with Joe Dave. I just, I couldn't believe I, I, Terry Bradshaw. I love Terry Bradshaw, but he was Pittsburgh Steelers. I was Cleveland Browns. How am I supposed to be a Pittsburgh Steelers fan? But the steel curtain was amazing for me. So the fact that I had an opportunity to actually sit down with Terry Bradshaw and sing a song, he played on the guitar. These are like dream come true moments that you would never in a million years think would ever be possible. So I did that show for two and a half years. Then I thought it couldn't get more hectic and it actually did into the eighties. I started, I did greatest sports legends for three years. I'm sitting there with Bill Russell and they had been trying to get Bill Russell to do greatest sports legends for years. They always said no. And when they called and said, we want to do Bill Russell with you and Jane, he says, yes. And he actually shows up. <laughs> I had to ask him, I said, why did you come this time? You've always told him no. And he said, because you are building your legacy and I want to be a part of it. Because those types of moments, those are things that little by little, they start to make you think, this is pretty extraordinary. I hadn't thought any of that was going to be where I would end up. Then I ended up doing my 
Love Your Body exercise program, they came to hire me and I said, no, I want to produce it and I want to write it. They said, okay. <laughs> Going, wow, okay. <laughs> then it comes out and it's number three in sales behind Jane Fonda and Richard Simmons. And there's a huge gap between number three and number four. It was basically just the three of us. Butterick Patton says, okay, we want to do a line of Jane Kennedy exercise patterns. And I said, um, but I have to make them. I have to make the patterns. And I said, how do you know to make patterns? I said, because my mom taught me how to sew ever since I was five years old. It was like a moment where you had opportunities that could have gone by. But the fact that I always stood up and I said that I was a fighter, I'm going to make sure that I'm going to do more than what I was asked to do. I had been trying to get a spokeswoman job for Coca-Cola for a couple of years and everything kept, I was turned down. My attorney who lived in Detroit was a friend of the Coca-Cola Detroit bottler. He called me and he said, Jane, get on the next plane and I want you here in Detroit tonight. I said, well, tell me what? You know, he said, no. He said, just bring a fancy dress. You're in Detroit tonight. I need you tonight. So we go to the bottler's little fancy endeavor, right? And the president of Coca-Cola USA walks in the door. So Ed Bell, my attorney, and I walked over to him, the Coca-Cola bottler and introduced us. Me and my outspoken self, believing in myself, I just started talking to him about what I was doing and why I thought Coca-Cola was amazing. And my mom used to drink Coca-Cola when I was a kid. You have to walk to the store every day and buy some cola. So he looked at me and he said, you should work for us. I said, yeah, we've been trying to tell them for two years. He said, no. And the next morning I had a contract. Wow. So it was like always believing that things were possible and never, ever saying I'm in a niche and I'm going to stay in that niche. If there was something that I believed that I could do, I just went for it. Yeah. I want to come back to the greatest sports legends. There's a couple of questions I want to ask you about that. But before I do, you'd mentioned your singing and I actually saw that clip with you and Terry Bradshaw. It's great. It's, it's still on YouTube. But I also found a clip of you singing I Am Woman with the group, the Dingalings, and uh, you singing lead and it was fantastic. You could actually sing, Jane. You could carry a tune. You were good. Did you ever consider a recording career? Was that ever something you thought you wanted to do? Yes, I did. And I would probably be financially set right now if it worked. <laughs> because back in the day, there were many Black actresses who had trained decade to be able to work at the craft in Los Angeles. But most of the great parts went to singers because when the studios are looking at what are going to put on the giant screen where we can actually draw viewers. So when you had like a Diana Ross who had a musical career and all of her songs could promote the fact that there was a movie coming out that she was in or Queen Latifah, who's got radio exposure, who can actually promote the fact that she's in a movie coming out. So you had a lot of times where Black actresses were being overlooked because they did not have a singing career where they could do promotion to lead into the movie. I did, when I first moved to Los Angeles, I was a singer-dancer for the Dean Martin show. I did nightclub work all over the country. All, and we, we traveled, I think I was on that show for about three years, but we traveled all the time. Then we would during the season, we would do the show with Dean where we would have singing and dancing. The whole week was learning routines, learning songs, presenting for the director so that the staging can be done. Then you're doing the wardrobe and then all of that. And we would have two shows that we would do on a Friday night. And then when the season was over, we'd be back on the road again. So singing was always something that was a part of me. I sang in high school. I was in different choirs in high school. So the thing is, when I finally figured out, I, mean, I took voice lessons in Los Angeles. Giuseppe Balistrieri was my teacher, my voice teacher. I had the opportunity to actually, a guy came to me and he said, I need to take you in the studio. I want to think about recording you. Oh my God, I, his name just slipped my mind. Giorgio Moroder. <laughs> Big name. Donna Summers, big producer. <laughs> oh my God. And I'm saying, Giorgio Moroni wants to record me. And I was so nervous. And I was so scared. I got to the studio. I was so bad. <laughs> and I said, can't you do some auto tuning <laughs> or whatever? <laughs> but oh my God, that would have been a true game changer. 
but it did not happen. It's not too late. But <laughs> on the on the subject of the greatest sports legends, I had as a guest, <laughs> I had as a guest on the program a fellow Ohio native of yours, Vanessa Bell Calloway, and she and her husband Tony had just returned from spending time with Magic Johnson and his wife Cookie cruising the Mediterranean. They had a fantastic time. I mean, they. Magic and Cookie, I guess, go there. They've been going there for a long time. They rent these yachts and it's really a, just a high-end experience. But Vanessa talked about being in the presence of greatness when she was around Irvin. And I'm curious, Jane, as a sports fan myself, I idolize some of the people that you've mentioned, Muhammad Ali, Bill Russell, Joe Namath, that list goes on. And I'm curious, having spent time in up close and personal, I watched your interviews with Kareem and the intimacy that I referred to early on was just so obvious, but there was, a, there was an ease I felt in the people that you spoke with in there talking with you. But on the note of greatness, when you're in the presence of people like that, do you feel something different? Do you recognize that? Is that greatness tangible? Is it something that you really feel? Or is it just that we idolize these sports stars and we put them on pedestals and they're just people too? Actually, for me, I do feel the greatness. It's pretty much almost impossible to be around Muhammad Ali and not feel the greatness. When I first met him, I had gone to the Nappy Convention in Las Vegas. And I was on the floor. Nappy is where they sell television shows. It's in huge national convention for television programs. This was when they were just starting. This was back in the 70s. So I'm sure a lot has changed since the 70s. But we were on the convention floor and heard that Muhammad Ali was in one of the suites upstairs and he was doing interviews. Leon and I went to the suite and the hallway was jam-packed with reporters. You could barely get to the door. It was just jam-packed. And so we work our way to the door and peek in and Ali is inside the suite, jam-packed. The reporters are like sardines in there. And uh, he's sitting on a dresser and he's talking to the press. So we worked our way into the doorframe. We're just standing there looking at him, holding court. <laughs> and he turned around and he said, oh, the dingling girl. <laughs> and he had realized it from the Dan Barton show. He said, come on here, come in here. So I worked my way to the front. He had me sit on the dresser next to him. And I'm going, oh my God, a dad could see this. Just thinking of my father, who was a huge sports fan. And I'm thinking of my mom. There's so many stories that I have to tell about him. It's just, you feel the greatness. You really do. But the most beautiful part is the people that are the greatest are the people that are the most humble as well. You can have a conversation with them and feel like you're actually talking to a person and not an extremely great individual. That made such a difference for me. We became very good friends, went to sit ringside with him at the Thriller in Manila, the drama in the Bahamas, the fight in Las Vegas, the fights everywhere. We, Washington, D.C., we went to so many of his fights because he became a good friend. But it was just amazing to see someone of his stature walk into the room on the effect that he has on people. I remember the arena just before the fight started in the Thriller in Manila. And I'm sitting in his quarter, which was totally unbelievable. I was only, what, 27, something like that. And I just, I remember in high school, I wanted to go see him fight on one of those closed-circuit giant jumbo screens. They had oversold it and got pushed through a glass window, and I had to throw my coat over the barbed wire so I could jump the barbed wire. We ended up going to another venue where we actually got a chance to see the fight. Here I am, and I'm sitting in his corner, what, five, six years later. And it was just unbelievable to me. But you would hear all of these voices from around the world. This is back when people used to actually dress for a fight. And everybody's in these amazing outfits. I want to say costumes even. It was just incredible to see the grandiose that he inspired. And then all of a sudden, somebody would just say, Ali. And then all these languages from around the world would just join in. They were all one, Ali. To see that impact was just mind-blowing. But then you would go to Deer Lake at his training camp, and he'd be sitting on a log, a, a stack of logs. He said, Jane, come sit with me. And there were just people that, neighborhoods or tourists, just driving by. And he would sit and he would talk with them. 
no security really. And he would just sit and talk with people and he would sit there till they were done. I remember one day I had come back from New York and I didn't have checked luggage. I just exited the airport in Los Angeles and Ali was sitting on top of his car, on top of his Rolls Royce at the curbside, signing autographs. I looked around and I didn't see anybody else. And I'm going, I said, Ali, are you going somewhere? Where's your people? He says, no, I'm not going anywhere. I said, where are you coming from? He said, no, I'm not coming from anywhere. He would never give you straight answers. He likes playing mind games. I said, okay, so what are you doing here? He said, no, it's, I was just sitting at home, didn't have anything to do. And so I thought I'd come sign autographs. <laughs> He's sitting there on top of a Rolls Royce at the car at United Airlines, just signing autographs. <laughs> But that was him. That was him. And then like a Terry Bradshaw, I'm sitting there and just having a fun conversation. Or O.J. Anderson in St. Louis, I believe it was. We're headed to the crew from the NFL films that was always doing the pieces, the interview pieces. So we're headed back to the airport after doing it. And this car comes racing up to catch us. And he's blaring his horn and yelling out the screen. He says, just wanted to give you an escort. And it's O.J. Anderson. Or like after I predicted that Tampa Bay was going to be Philadelphia in the playoffs. And Doug Williams was quarterback. And he had invited the guys for dinner Thursday night before the Sunday game. I was already in Tampa Bay and he said, Jane, come on over. The guys are going to be here. Just come on, sit and chat. So I said, well, why don't I make dinner for you? Which I did. I made dinner for everybody. And I'm hearing all the things that they're getting ready to do. And the fact that some of the key players would be coming back that they needed so that Doug could actually do his thing. So anyway, when Brent asked me who was going to win the game, everybody said Philadelphia. I was the only one that picked Tampa Bay and everybody laughed at me and Tampa Bay won. <laughs> so I was so excited, but I'm going to the airport and it's Brent, Irv and I, and we're headed to the gate. And I hear this voice from far away, Jane, and he's screaming, and it's Doug Williams running through the airport to catch me before we boarded the plane. He said, I just want the guys and I, we just wanted to thank you for believing in us. So I, those moments, they never go away. They never fade. But it was, greatness happens in all different forms. I never looked at myself as being great. Then all of a sudden, I get on my Instagram account, a guy that I didn't know. He says, look what I saw today. He sent me a picture. And the picture was something that he took. The Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture Hope just opened. He was there. And he went to the Oprah Winfrey Wing at the television and media landscape exhibit. My picture was on the wall <laughs> with Nat King Cole, Diana Ross, Diane Cole, Michelle Nichols, and Don Cornelius. And he had taken it from the perspective of Don Cornelius was in the foreground and I was very deep in the spotlight. So my comment was, I can't believe this, this is incredible. I said, oh, but it's so bad, too bad you didn't get it from the other end so that I could actually see my picture. He went back the next day. And he sent me the picture again and he had taken it from the other perspective. I said, oh my God, I got to go see this. So I jumped on an airplane with this man who was living in DC and we raced to the museum and I walked through the door and I saw it and it just took my breath away. Oh, Jesus. Okay. That's when it hit. In all the things I've ever done in my career, that was the moment. Yeah. I'm going to come back to that, Jane, because I watched a little bit of that with you and I was really moved by your reaction to it. But before I do, I wanted to, a couple of things that I wanted to touch on with you. And one, you mentioned some of the other projects that you took on and the exercise video, which I watched and I thought it was fantastic. It was pretty strenuous and you're in really good shape. But you mentioned that your mom had stressed that it was important to develop, that the inside of a person was what mattered the most and how much that, that resonated with you. It's no secret that you're a very beautiful woman. And I'm curious if you ever felt that you had to play down the way that you looked to be seen beyond the physical. Thank you for saying that. And it, it was my mother and my father who instilled that with that. There were five girls in my family and one boy. And my dad worked two to three jobs often that I can remember. He had a side hustle where he was doing moving jobs and he would do moving jobs all around Ohio, Kentucky, Virginia. We would go with him a lot. That's how we would earn our little bit of money. And I remember a guy came up to my dad and he said, you have all these beautiful girls. 
why don't you get yourself a car, a nice car? And my dad said, if we had a nice car, they would be beautiful girls. And the beautiful was about not just what we were seen as, but as to who we were. It wasn't about things. It wasn't about money. It was about who we were as people. I do remember flash forward many years later and my very first day on the NFL today. I knew that people were going to say, oh my gosh, she's Miss Ohio. She thinks she's a beauty queen. She thinks she's got it all set because of her looks and all that. I was so sick and tired of hearing that. I said, it has nothing to do with looks. I never thought, I didn't have a date to my high school prom. I didn't go out. I never dated until I was 19. So it, it was never about looks for me. But I said, going onto the set of the NFL Today, my very first day, I wasn't going to be glamorous. I wore intentionally a bowling shirt. I just wanted to come on in a bowling shirt. I just wanted to just be regular, plain Jane. That was it. That was my agenda. Interesting. On the subject of beauty, health, and fitness, that's continued, obviously, to be a focus in our culture. Unfortunately, women are still objectified and, in some cases, play into these unrealistic expectations and standards of beauty. Maybe unfair to pick on them, but I think of the Kardashians as an example where you've got plastic surgery, filtered images projected over social media. And marketing products to achieve this unrealistic standard of beauty. They're selling these things and perfect body, skin, lips, et cetera, what have you. And as a mother of daughters, Jane, I'm curious how you feel about a culture that continues to equate physical attractiveness with upward mobility and value. At what point does self-care or the way we physically present cross over into narcissism? I have to say that I was blessed to have raised my daughters before the social media impact of the filters and all of that set in. When my daughters grew up, we didn't have that. They were who they were. And Jane was just mommy Jane, soccer Jane, pick me up from school Jane, pick me up from school mom. It wasn't really that they were in the entertainment industry. They weren't raised in an environment where they thought that they had to look a certain way to be successful. I was on the sidelines cheering for their soccer games just as much as anybody else. It wasn't part of the value set that I instilled in my children, that you had to be perfect um, in terms of any terms. I was just going to say perfect in terms of how you look, but you didn't have to be perfect in anything. Just be the best that you could be. That's always what I, that's the way my parents raised me. That's what I raised my children with that guideline. But I also instilled in them you are, you're not even your sisters. You all may have the same experiences growing and growing up, but you're individuals. Each of you is different. Each of you is amazing. You are who you are at your core. To me, that was the biggest lesson I could ever teach them. So now, fast forward, we're into this era where we do have images that are manifested into, you have to be 100%. You have to look like this. You have to act like this. and. That's how you get a gazillion likes. And if you don't get likes, then you're not successful. I'm so thankful that's not the culture that my children grew up Now, when it comes to some of the children that are growing up in that culture, I have to say that when people say to me, probably one of the biggest compliments you can give me is that's when natural beauty was a thing. That's when natural charisma was a thing. That's when... Being yourself was a thing. That's one of the biggest compliments you could want to give me. When I did the Black Enterprise magazine, selected me to receive the Black Enterprise Women of Fire Legacy Award. And this was maybe five years ago. They said, we want to give you this honor, but we also want your daughters there to see it. So they brought all of my children to, to the event. It was just incredible. The fact that they could see what mom was doing in a room where there were 2,000 executives, all women, executives of major corporations, people that are doing things that you have struggled all your lives to be able to achieve this platform, this status within your certain industry. And they were all there to pay homage to their mom, who <laughs> was just soccer mom, just picking up the school box. So Copper said, all this time, I knew mom was like in show business. I knew she was a trailblazer. She said, but now I see what y'all been talking about. <laughs> she said, I get it now. 
So that was something that was really important <laughs> to me. But the fact that morning I woke up and I looked at my Instagram and there was a, a, a dad had posted a picture of his daughter who looked to be about seven years old. She was told that she had to, it was classroom was doing a, a living museum and they had to each pick someone that they were going to honor in their living museum. She had one of these frames, those cutout frames, and she was holding it around her. It said Jane Kennedy on the top and she had a Miss Ohio banner, Miss Ohio crown, and she had a football that she was holding. The fact that the, this little girl could see something in me or that her parents told her to see in me was something that, you know, the, the fact that it was natural, that didn't get lost on me. And her name was Faith. So I have faith that we will get to a point where we are not glued to this idea of perfection, of being filtered images. And if you can't achieve that image, that you're not true to yourself or you're not successful in your own mind. Successful in your own mind is way more important than being successful in anyone else's mind. Yeah, I hear you. Jane, you are re-emerging publicly at a really interesting time. We're coming off of a worldwide pandemic, social and political reckoning here at home and around the globe, race, women's rights, voting rights, treatment of people of color by the police, things that we may have thought we'd made significant progress on being relitigated. Certainly Roe v. Wade. In some corners, there's talk of civil war with the rest of the world watching our domestic infighting. It just can't be good for world peace and global stability. But I'm curious, what are you encouraged by in terms of the future and what has you most concerned? I am truly shocked that we are where we are as a country right now. I thought that we were better than this. Like I said, I lived through the civil rights movement. I lived through the 60s. I never thought that we would go backwards. I thought that we had gotten to a place where certainly not. Okay, I'll just take for an example. I saw a Black Lives Matter tribute in New York. And what stood out the most for me, the fact that the majority of the, it was, protesters in the street with signs, megaphones. And what stood out to me during a Black Lives Matter tribute in the streets of New York was that the majority of the protesters were not Black. When we had the Watts riot, when we had the Cleveland riots, those protesters were Black. So the fact that we have now come to a, a point in time where the humankind can see other people as an equal. Maybe not all of us do at this point, but the fact that we are now at a point in time where we do have that is a huge achievement for me. I really thought that was going to be the touchstone going forward. But then when we've had, unfortunately, these past four years where we had someone telling people that it's okay to hate, just totally unacceptable for me. And I will send it to you, but I will show it to you now. You talk about what I raised for my children. I have this that I keep with me at all times. Do you recognize this? This was the Women's March on Washington. This was ah. the Women's March on Washington. This photo was shot by a photographer and it ended up going around the world. The next morning, it was on the lead page of AOL, of Google, of Yahoo, of New York Post, the Jerusalem Press. It went around the world. This photo of the Women's March in Washington, D.C., the very first one, just after the inauguration. And right there, guess who's in the middle? That's my daughter, Savannah. <laughs> and I am so proud, my girls, the fact that they have a belief in themselves that my husband and I helped to build. That, to me, is the most significant part of what we have to do in terms of going forward. We have to teach our youth that this isn't the way it's supposed to be, that love has a message, that love is a responsibility. I just think that it's more important than ever that we take the initiative, that we believe that things can be changed, that we believe that outcomes can be different, that we acknowledge when people are just I don't want to use that language. I'm stumbling because I have so many words that I want to use that I don't use normally. 
but it just pisses me off. And I just get so angry at some of the things that I see people doing these days. It's totally unacceptable to me. So as we're moving towards a close here, Jane, I wanted to touch on the honor at the Smithsonian. I watched a clip of you at the Museum of African-American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. that you alluded to. As I mentioned in the intro, and you mentioned a few minutes ago, you were inducted into the Annals of Media Pioneers, along with the luminaries, as we've said, Diane Carroll, Nat King Cole, Michelle Nichols, the Supremes, and Don Cornelius. And you got a little emotional just a few minutes ago when you viewed the wall of honorees. And clearly the honor of being recognized for your contribution was moving. But what was going through your mind at that moment? What was going through my mind was I couldn't believe that all the things that I went through just to get there. I had these flashbacks of so many different images of my life, including when I was a senior in high school. Going into my senior year, my teachers had selected me to be one of six girls to go to Girl State in Athens, Ohio. And Girl State is a mock government program. On the bus to Girl State, one of my classmates told me that I should run for governor. I have no idea why they thought <laughs> that I should run for governor, but I did. And I did not win, but I was elected to be a senator to Washington, D.C. When I got to Washington, D.C., I decided that I was going to run for vice president of the United States. And I won. So technically, even though it was Girl State, I was the first African-American <laughs> to be vice president of the United States. But one of the things that we did was we went to the Smithsonian. And I just was so blown away by being in the Smithsonian as a 17-year-old kid, 16-year-old kid, looking at all the greatness that was there. So here I am standing face-to-face -face with me <laughs> on the wall and thinking about all the people that told me, no, you can't do this. No, you, we don't use Blacks. We don't use Blacks on the magazine covers. We don't hire Blacks. You're too tall. We can't find an actor to work there opposite you because we can't frame you. The director won't know how to frame the shot. No, everything was no. And all the strife of being a celebrity, all the strife of being, trying to get a career. I remember the day my agent called me and he said, I cannot believe it. We got you a part and it doesn't say that the role has to be a black woman. It just says this woman does this and we got you the part. I remember the day that I was hired to do a fragrance ad for Jovan Fragrances with Morgan Fairchild, Lee Horsley, and Billy D. Williams. The four of us got paid the same amount of money. I remember the amount of money that I got paid in the NFL today, only $40,000, when other people were making gobs more money than I was making. People telling me, no, we don't hire Blacks. No, we don't use Black. No, we can't sit your sister in this audience seat while you perform on stage because she's Black. We don't allow Blacks. I remember that the kitchen staff, who was all Black, stopped because I refused to go on stage until they seated my sister. All those thoughts just started flooding through me. And, oh my God, I, just, I was just looking at that. And I said, who would have thought that just sitting on that desk with that platform and then being able to just do me and have people respect that. I just wanted my mom and dad to see it. A month ago, I went home and I had this composite video that I'd taken with me and it was my career. And my mom who has dementia now, one day she said to me, I said, mom, do you know who I am? She says, she's thinking, and I said, I'm Jane. And she's thinking, I said, I'm Jane. She's thinking. And then finally she looks at me and she says, you're Jane Kennedy. <laughs> I said, I'm Jane, your daughter. <laughs> so just a month ago, I sat there and I was showing her this video of my career. And she was glowed. And it was so hard to keep her attention at anything else. But she sat there and she was glowed at this, watching this video. And she kept looking at me and she kept saying, oh my God, Jane, oh my God. And she, she knew those were just minutes that I will hold for the rest of my life because I was able to show my mom that when she said, when I was 17 and she said, you were meant to do something great and it's not here in Ohio, you just need to go. That she believed in me. Here I am, she's 94 and I can actually show her some of the achievements that she believed would come true.
Wow, Jane, that's beautiful. What a happy thing to share with your mom. I'm so glad to hear that. I know I'm not alone in saying this, that there's a significant audience out here that has really missed you and would like to hear more from you. Is there a memoir or autobiography in the works that, that we can look forward to possibly? Yes, as a matter of fact, thank you for asking. Everybody kept telling me in the 90s, everybody kept telling me, you need to write a book. You need to write a book about your, your achievements, the sacrifices, the things that you've overcome, the impact. So many people would learn from all of that. I just, and I still didn't get it at that point. I still didn't get it that I was Jane Kennedy. I was Jane Harrison. I was still Jane Harrison, <laughs> which is my main thing, my family thing. But I finally came to terms with, I was going to write the book, even if it was just for me, because I was at a time in my life when I needed to find peace within me. I said, if this was, if this process was just cathartic and never get published, then I'd be blessed with that. So I started writing it and I decided it was going to be a living process piece. And I would write as I experienced. At first, I just threw everything on paper. Anything that I could remember, I just started putting it on paper. I didn't have a purpose. I didn't have a through line. I just wanted to get stuff out of my head and on paper. So I just compiled all of this stuff. And I came up with the idea that I would do four parts of my existence. Jane Harrison which would be growing up, Jane Kennedy, which would be Hollywood life, Jane Overton, which is my children being a mother, the significance of society and the impact that's on not only my children, but their friends and all the other young ladies out there, young men out there. What can I do? What is my purpose? How do I help you? And then the final chapter, the final part of the book is Plain Jane, which is the title of the book. And it's where I find out who I am at my core. At that point, to be able to write that part, I was going to have to experience not being the mom anymore, not being the Hollywood life anymore, not, not being any of those titles, but just playing Jane. Who am I and what is my purpose? So that's what I've been writing. I just finished a book proposal and sending it off to publishers in New York. I'm keeping fingers crossed that very soon we will get some bites. And within the next few years, then Plain Jane will be out. I'm also working on a, a documentary, a biodoc. There's so many things that I can share that people, people keep telling me all the time, you have no idea, Jane, you have no idea the impact that you make, the significance, the fact that young women still today, millennials still today, will talk about how you inspired them. I was at a conference and this girl came up to me and she was the only black female at, I think it was Google in Silicon Valley. She had just been hired straight out of college and she felt so alienated. She came to see me at a conference and she just, I just grabbed her and I held her because she was shaking and crying. Well, she was what, 26, 27. I just grabbed her and I held her and I said, you're not alone. You're not alone. And my daughter Copper pulled out her business card and gave it to the girl. She said, the next time you feel that way, you call me. And then two years later, Black Enterprise invited me to a follow-up conference of their, all of their honorees. I came off the stage and the girl, the same girl, she said, I came back when I heard you were there. She said, I came back to let you know that I listened to you. I heard your words. I heeded your words and I am doing fine now. She said, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for believing in me. And she was now 29. If I can do that for someone, it's a blessing. I don't know what my message is, Play Jane. I know, I know that it's to find a purpose. I know that as I write this final chapter, which I'm saving for the very end, not the very end of the book, this final chapter, I'm saving it for the very end after I get my publishing deal and I actually sit down to write because I wanted to encompass everything. When that pours out of me, I will have the whole story. Jane, I appreciate the title, Plain Jane, but I'm sure I'm not alone in saying that there is nothing plain about you <laughs> and uh, your presence is powerful. It always has been. And uh, I look forward to hearing more from you. As I said, we've really missed you. So it's great to see you. I really want to thank you for today and agreeing to be our guest. So happy to see you. And I just want to wish you and Bill and your family all the best. And thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for being there. Thank you for offering the opportunity. When I do this, it reminds me of, I, I nearly died in the early 70s. 
and I was saved by an angel. When I told my mom the story, she said, because it wasn't your time yet, Jane. She said, you have something that you have yet to do. So that's what my life has been about. What is it that I have yet to do? So thank you for offering this opportunity for me to continue to explore. My pleasure. Here I am with my favorite part of the day. We call this segment How We Move in my dear friend and sister from way back. Ambassador Shabazz joins me. So Ambassador Jane Kennedy Overton, wow. Just to see her back on the scene. What was your take? You stated it in your opening. She's an icon indeed. And what does that mean? Today, when we listen to young people talk about OGs, they were born in the 80s. (laughs) And you talk about people who contributed that, which enabled those born in the 80s to be who they are. Jane Kennedy Overton is certainly amongst them. She set a contemporary pathway for artists and representatives during the first round of contemporary television. I don't mean the people you're in my parents' age, but this modern direction of imagery and sitcoms and various television shows and with absolute beauty, grace, and brilliance. So she wasn't just an artist on screen. She was then a spokesperson as well, an interviewer. And we got to see her. We knew her name. Everybody knew her name. Not just the Black population, but everybody knew Jane Kennedy's name. And that she was a stallion of a beauty as well at 5'10". Unapologetically her. And personally, I got to know her like everybody else did in the 70s. But I had the pleasure of meeting her in the 80s professionally. During the Image Awards, when we were producing, launching what is now known as NAACP, Image Awards, and then in the 90s, once she was married to the lovely Bill Overton and their families united, I had the opportunity to be in their presence a few times. But today, I learned so much more. Her roots, her childhood, her conviction, and her dedication. And so you have to say, who are people before the moment we capture them, right? Who was Jane Kennedy, Jane Harrison, before we knew her name? Before the likes of Hollywood defined her or magazines captured her, even things like that. I just thought it was such a brilliant interview. It warmed me. I always admired her. But the woman she is now and gets to reflect and share through her book or whatever forum, I'm really excited about sharing Jane Kennedy today with others. Ambassador, I'm curious, when you first saw Jane Kennedy in her role as a spokesperson on CBS, I don't know that you watched that much football, but I'm sure you were aware that she had landed. What was your impression? What, how, what did that say to you? Back then, every time someone Black was on a television or a commercial or something, we'd call each other out. <laughs> did you catch Channel 7? Did you catch Channel 4? Did you catch Channel 2? Who's the so-and-so? And we would know those persons by name. That was the one doing the ad. That was the one making the presentation. That's the spokesperson. And Jane Kennedy was amongst those. And she represented it right in a way that our parents would be proud of. We get to emulate. And ever since, my heart warmed. And just listening to her, we have the benefit of seeing one another on camera. So seeing her, wow. It was just really wonderful. I think we have a duty, dear brother, of introducing people to the toddler boomers because I don't think the generations today, even those 50 years old, have a clue of the roadmap or the bridge work from those that preceded us to what they benefit from now, what enables them to flourish so in their respective careers why we could know their names and they not know ours or the likes of Jane Kennedy is a travesty. We need to bridge that gap. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I hope that the show has that impact. What struck me too, Ambassador, was her tenderness and her emotions were right there. She was clearly moved by the Smithsonian induction and vulnerable and almost a little surprised that People view her the way they do. It wasn't, it's not hard to be first or only. Diane Carroll talked about some of those stories. Sidney Poitier did not love being the first and the only one reigning Black Oscar winner. That is a lonely place and space to be in. 
And when so much time, when decades goes by and beneficiaries not even know you exist or the world around you moves so fast, I think it's just really an affirmation. I don't think she ever looked for it, but it's nice to certainly have it. She certainly deserves it. They're not doing it because they were lost on who they needed to acknowledge. They were giving it to the person, someone old enough to recall her value. Someone like on that committee, like you and I, who would know that she existed and that there are things we have and benefit from today because she existed, not just because she existed, because she represented. When we reached out and I let her know that you joined me with this wonderful segment that we do and asked if she knew, she said, oh, yes, not only do I know Ambassador Shabazz, but I knew her mother, Dr. Betty. And generational to draw that connection into our conversation, that just warmed my heart. How did that make you feel knowing that there's a shared appreciation for your mom and the generation? Oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. So I'm not surprised, of course, when people bring up my dad's name, but people, strangers will stop me and say, are you Betty Shabazz's (laughs) daughter? And I'm thinking, yes, I am. And so when I meet The nieces of my mom, meaning the circle of young women that are just older than me, but were like endeared to my mother, and I get to meet them or they get to reference those stories, my heart is just really, it giggles. Yeah. yeah. Because that's her. That was her. I'll tell you, I was so honored that she agreed to join us. I really was just so happy and just really honored. So. I want to I want to switch topics here and I want to smack your hand a little bit because those listening can hear the raspy tone in your voice. Very white voice. Yeah, it's we can mistake that for a little a little sexiness, but that's not it. You are overworked, overtraveled, yeah. overextended and you don't say no, you don't stop. But I know you also are mindful of self-care. Obviously, we've got to take care of ourselves first. It's sexy, though, right? I kind of had, I've always had a, a, what is Vaughn Harper's show? Oh, The Quiet Storm? Yeah. A little mix of Vaughn and Jerry Bledslow. (laughs) (laughs) We make light of it, but please do take good care of yourself. And I'll be checking in on you later on, of course. And uh, rest your voice and your body, please, because we need you. Well, and I hope people tune in to both this interview, those that proceed and the ones that follow. So we really do learn about the lives lived. I really look forward myself to the corner table because I think somewhere in there's some medicine for somebody. I hope so. I hope so. Ambassador Shabazz and how we move. I'll see you soon. (laughs) I'll check in on you later. Okay. All right.